This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by composer David T. Little, whose opera Soldier Songs will be presented on October 13th. And I say his opera Soldier Songs. And it was actually Beth Morrison years later who said, well, you know this is an opera, right? And I said, no, it's, it's not. Is it? <laughs> she said, yeah, totally. Because it has, you know, the, the way the, the arc works. And, you know, she gave me all these reasons why you know, why Soldier Songs was an opera. And I said, oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> I wrote an opera. That's great. We'll discuss genre, the work itself, the role that performing arts organizations can play in welcoming veterans home to the United States after active duty, and a whole lot more in conversation next with composer David T. Little. It's great to welcome to the podcast composer David T. Little. Welcome. Thanks for speaking with me. Thanks so much. Of course. I um, love how the classical music uh, media world uh, tends to assign and attach labels to artists and composers, mm-hmm. and uh, you have been someone who has always been described as a drummer. A lot of profiles that I've read talk about punk rock and uh, that world, and then how that world intersects with classical music. <laughs> I always sort of get a kick out of that, and I imagine you must as well. You know, it's funny. I mean, the the way artists are described, I think they're inevitably part true and maybe part less true. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, I I am a drummer. My my, uh, undergraduate degree is in percussion performance. I've played a lot until until really when I started to be very serious about opera, partially because it takes so much time. I, I sort of retired as a drummer at least for the time being. Um, but I've been very active um, around New York for a while. Yeah, and that, and my musical origins are many. Um, one of them is, is heavy metal and uh, punk. and But then, you know, the flip side of that is also performing a lot in musical theater and, you know, being very serious about classical music. And um, so all of those things kind of combine... I think, to make me into the artist that I am. And a piece like Soldier Songs, you know, you definitely hear the presence of punk and metal in the score. I think you could also see the influence of Sondheim. You can also see the influence of Stravinsky. So uh, in a way, it's a, it's a great piece to encapsulate a lot of my sort of musical origins, which at the time I wrote it, I was really grappling with. And I, you know, I wrote this originally in 2000, between 2004 and 2006. Mm-hmm. And the first concert performance was in 2006. And right around that time, I, I was struggling with the notion of what was permissible in composition. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I because I had grown up with all of these different musical uh, influences, um, which are even, you know, include a lot of other things that, that I haven't mentioned. Um, the question of did that belong in my so-called classical work? And if so, how? was really um, something I was thinking a lot about at the time. And so when I was writing Soldier Songs and when I was writing uh, a piece just after this called Sweet Light Crude, I really just said to myself that everything was on the table, everything was available, everything was possible aesthetically in terms of genre or style. And 
and if I felt that something was the right choice, I was just going to do it. I was going to go for it. And at the time, I remember saying, well, I'm, you know, not yet 30. I can, you know, there's still, if, if I do this and it's a kind of experiment and it's terrible, I can just move on and not do it again and try something else. But what I found is that it was really exciting at the time and very inspiring and worked really well in the context of drama because you were able to utilize style and genre in a way to convey dramatic gestures and, and dramatic intent um, in a way that I found really exciting. So it kind of stuck and, and for really a long time was central to um, central to my compositional voice. I think that's starting to change a little bit now as I've gotten older, but um, it's it's really, well, I guess it's not really true. The piece I'm writing now is, is for rock band and tenor and <laughs> string quartet. <laughs> so maybe it's still very, very much at the core. But I love the word that you use there, um, permissible. What, what was permissible in what you were writing? And I love uh, just the idea of a sort of wrestling with that thought. Um, even, you know, is there such a thing as right and wrong um, when you're composing? Is there such a thing as, well, I, I absolutely can't do this for, you know, reason A, B, C, or D? Like, what? tell me about that struggle. Well, for me, it came, um, it came about because I was very enthusiastic, but was at a place where I didn't have a lot of information. So I was devouring perspectives of new music journals from the 70s, because that's what my library and my university had. And so I, I sort of absorbed a certain perspective, which was a very particular modernist perspective. And that was what I decided was correct. And so that's what I was sort of undoing in 2006, between 2004 and six, when I was starting to play with genre and things like that and trying to, to reincorporate music that I really loved and that was really important sort of in my musical DNA. Um, so the question of whether there is something that is permissible or not permissible, I would say everything is possible and it becomes a question of how well it's done. Uh, and this is, you know, when I teach my students at Manus in New York, that's what, that's how I approach it. You know, if they want to do something, I say, great, go for it. But we need to make sure that it's done well. And I think if you do it well, then you can sort of make anything work. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a much more freeing mindset, I would think. Um, yeah. Now, uh, I mean, I think there are still certain, like, cult, you know, there are certain cultural things that I think one needs to be aware of and be careful of. So I don't want to say that you know everything is fine because it's a little more complicated than that. But, sure. <laughs> um, but you know, as as a sort of base creative philosophy, I think it's a good place to start, and then you can assess each individual case. Yeah. As as it comes. Do you think any of the this kind of mindset is um, is generational? So, um, like, uh, not to talk about how old we are, but. <laughs> You turned 40 a little later this year. Uh, I'm a few years younger than you, but same sort of generation where we grew up without a lot of influence of technology in our lives, and then we got computers at some point when we were going right. to school, and now we have access to all sorts of uh, different sounds and, and music from all over the world. It is the sort of openness and uh, omnivorous aspect of music uh, consumption and creation. Do you think that has anything to do with, with the generation, with age? I'm not sure. Uh, it might have. I think 
for me, it was it actually was separate from technology in that it was sort of an internal struggle mm-hmm. that that may, maybe technology had some part in in um, instigating you know this, this this shift. But because I, you know it's not like I was I was not omnivorous and then became omnivorous. I always sure. was as sure. a as a as a kid. I was into anything that was music. Um, and you know, I played in a fife and drum corps, so I know all these, you know, Civil War folk tunes, and you know, I have this sort of weird um, musical pedigree. And then I just, then I sort of made it this, drew a line in the sand. I said, okay, well, all that is off. That's not available anymore. Mm. And and sort of focused on this sort of very narrow, uh, pers- very very narrow definition of what was okay in the realm of avant-garde classical music, and then undid that. So um, I think. Certainly, when I was doing that, I was able to discover a lot of things that I maybe hadn't known previously, and so I think in that sense, the, the, the presence of things like iTunes helped. Yeah, you know, it helped helped me discover more that maybe I didn't know mm-hmm. from my childhood. But but I kind of think, yeah, I think the process went sort of the other direction for me. Interesting. How does one uh, get into a fife and drum corps? One sees a fife and drum corps in a local parade and thinks it's cool, and then tracks down, uh, I think in my case, it was uh, my mother taught with someone whose daughter was in the drum corps. And so she found out about it. We had seen this, this drum corps in a St. Patrick's Day parade or something. Mm. And, you know, it was a sort of colonial American uh, and drum corps, and I was very interested in history. And so that really appealed to me. And um, drums, you know, I grew up with a drum set in the house and was very interested in drumming. And so... Um, yeah, we saw them in the parade, tracked down the information, and then I think within two weeks I was at Friday night practice signing up. Wow. And these are the big then, drums that you strap uh, over your shoulder and sort of hang off to the side? or Yeah, the big rope tension. Yeah. Tension drums, yeah. Yes. And it was great. I mean, it was my first music I ever made with anybody was, you know, these siphon drum court tunes, which I did all through high school. I was really, really into it. And it was the first music I ever played first instrument I ever learned was this rope tension snare drum and I learned everything by ear because that's sort of how we did it you know sort of get it taught something by rote so it was an interesting sort of you know oral tradition in a very particular and sort of unusual one that I initially came out of and then that sort of expanded into into other things but I think you if you know that music it's actually present in a lot of the way I think about rhythm which is sort of um, which is interesting the particular style of drumming really shaped how I think about time and rhythm, um, which is, so I end up asking for very particular things. In filter songs, there are certainly moments in the, in the drum set part where it's like, no, this is kind of a drum core thing, you know. Yeah. I have to kind of explain it in the notes. Oh, that's so interesting. When did you first uh, start having compositional thoughts, like there's music inside of me and, and I, I would like to get it out? Was it, and I guess... Also, sort of a corollary to that question is, when did you start writing things down? I had a my first sort of really terrible rock band when I was probably 12. Um, and none of us could really play our instruments, so we didn't really, you know, make anything interesting. But, we, but the interest in making something was there, and mm. the interest in trying to compose. I remember, I think I was talking to my father, he was like, well, why don't you play... You know, a cover song. That's a good way to start. And I said, no, we have to write an original song <laughs> and and didn't know how to do it and so completely failed. Um, but really from that point, I was very interested in 
in writing music or creating music, original music. Um, and then in later bands, I, you know, I was always a sort of like a punchline, right? But the drummer uh, has a song they want to try. You know? right, and right. My songs are always a little weird, and the harmony was always a little like too dissonant for <laughs> for the, the rock <laughs> band. It never quite worked, but I, but I was always trying to find a, a kind of outlet, not really knowing that classical music or contemporary music was a thing. You know, I, I had a little exposure to it in school. I mean, I knew who Aaron Copeland was and I knew who Gunnar Bernstein was, but beyond that, I didn't know too much. Um, and then, so then it was through through film score that I was sort of introduced to all of that. So I, I think I was 15 and I saw The Nightmare Before Christmas, and that particular score. Um, well, there are two things. I mean, one, it so much of it is this sort of weird blending of musical theater and the kind of darker, you know, heavy metal industrial stuff that I was in, at least the kind of energy of it, um, blended into the dark Danny Elfman score. And I, and it was the first time that I realized that this was somebody's job to make music mm. and that this is what he did, he, you know. And then I realized, I was like, oh, he also did Batman. He also did Beetlejuice. And he also did... TV's big adventure and all these scores that I knew really well and it never occurred to me that someone made them. They just sort of existed, <laughs> you know. And so that was the point where I said, Oh, I'm gonna be a composer and then I just got went to Stravinsky and then I you know, and then it was sort of all over. Once I heard the Rite of Spring it was that was it. Yeah. For me. Yeah. And that's interesting that you know, you would hear um the Rite of Spring and you know, that would be sort of a catalyst for oh, I, I need to do this too. Uh, you know, I, I as a non-composer, I would hear that and think, oh, God, I could never do anything. (laughs) It's been done. Well, and there's certainly that feeling as well, you know, that sort of this is a mountain, how am I ever going to climb this? Mm. Um, And, you know, for many years after, you know, I mean, that was 15, I didn't really start writing music. I mean, I tried to do, I tried to write some music for drums, you know, because that's what I knew, but um, it wasn't really until I got to college and I got a teacher who was able to sort of give me some direction and instruction and, you know, point me to other pieces besides the Rite of Spring and the Firebird, you know, um, which were like side A and side B of the cassette I had bought. Right, right. Um, and, uh, and that was really, I mean, college was really um, incredibly eye-opening in that way, but also really stressful because I felt like I was, you know, playing catch-up in this, really intense way, which I think now, looking back, is not really true. And now as a teacher, I see where my students are, and it's like, oh, you know, this is just sort of, you know, composers aren't writing symphonies for the most part at 12, 13 years old. I mean, some do, but the majority of people who are working composers um, have a sort of less direct and um, later start. Yeah, yeah. I I was thinking of, you know, some of the percussionist composers out there and of course Bill Kraft um mm-hmm. is is top of mind. I guess Steve Reich started out as a yeah as a percussionist. Lou Harrison kind of, you know, and mm-hmm. the Gamelon or Andy Akiho's uh percussionist and steel pan player. Yeah. Yep. Um yeah, there are a couple of us floating around. It they're, they're sort of less common than the pianist composer, right? We all know the pianist composer. Right. As a kind of historic entity so yeah, the drummer composers a more recent, sort of late twentieth century <laughs> phenomenon, I guess. But I was also reading somewhere, um, and this is not a scientific study or anything, but that you know, uh, 
close to maybe 25% of, of percussionists do write a, a bit of music if they're not, you know, full, full time, full fledged composers. Like, because you're always having to play with sound and you're always having to come up with, you know, yeah. different, you know, f- different instruments and that sort of thing. Well, and the percussion music tradition is so rich and so recent, mm-hmm. you know, that it's really just the end of the 20th century that you start getting percussion music happening. And so I think percussionists are always playing new work. And so it's not, if you're always engaging with new work, um, it's not that far to say, well, you know, why don't I try this? Let me, you know, or maybe I could do that better than this composer who doesn't play my instrument. Because <laughs> percussion is weird in a lot of ways. <laughs> so it helps, to, you know, it helps, I think, to know the instruments to be able to write idiomatically for them. I mean, it's like guitar or something, too. I mean, you know, instruments, all instruments have their quirks. Um, and so the more of those quirks you can internalize, the better off you'll be. So for a percussionist, um, you know all the quirks. Yeah, yeah. So what was, like, one of the big draws for you, um, not to reduce it to one thing, but just sort of the that... Um, you know, the impetus for you to get into the world of opera, writing dramatic music. Um, what What's the uh, allure there for you? I spent a lot of time in theaters and, um, you know, working on shows, you know, very amateur kind of shows in school um, and then in college, higher level. Um, and there was something about the space of a theater and the kind of magic that you can make happen there that I've always been really excited by. I've always been really drawn to. Um, and I think at the time that collided with, you know, and what brought about Soldier Songs is it collided with an opportunity from the Pittsburgh Music Ensemble. I had won their, they have this competition, the Harvey Gall Prize, and I had won it. And the prize is a commission to write a piece for the group. And I remember having a conversation with Kevin No. Um, and, and Pittsburgh, I should say, Pittsburgh Music Ensemble does all of their all all of their shows have um, lighting designs and staging. Mm. They they really I think they're now calling it the theater of music. You know, so they're really taking the new music ensemble and putting it in a theatrical context. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited to work with a group that was very comfortable with sort of theater apparatus. And I said, well, you know, I, I have this group that's you know game for this kind of a, of a of an endeavor, and so I said to Kevin, you know, would you be cool if I wrote the whole show instead of just a piece on the show, and treated it as a monodrama for this singer Timothy Jones, uh, who's a member of the group, and um, and he said yes, much to my surprise. I was expecting <laughs> him to say no. Why don't you just do your twenty minutes and you know? But he said sure, um, and gave me some sort of guidelines like as long as it's this long and you know feels like a full show and I said great and suddenly I had a, a, my first opera commission yeah um, although I wasn't really thinking of it as an opera I was thinking of it as a staged song cycle sure um, and so the, the, the structure as um, that it's structured as songs is significant and I think um, I think that was also a, a sort of safety net that I gave myself because form in opera is such a important and challenging thing and by creating songs i gave myself a little bit of leeway where i could always flip two songs if i really needed to i could rearrange them if i needed to in some way as i was working to kind of make it 
work. So in a way, it was a kind of study for later pieces like Dog Days or JFK, um, um, because I had these, these these kind of self-contained units that I could um, arrange in the in the most dramatically effective way. Mm-hmm. And I think I did switch one or two. I, I ended up not needing that lifeline as much as I thought I might. But um, nice to but build it, it in like, just in case, though. Well, I think it was psychologically important. Yes, for me because otherwise it was it felt really frightening. And that was like, well, I can always. You know, it was like the thing, the genre. Well, I'm, I'm not 30 yet. I can always just do something different. Right. You know, <laughs> um, it, it helped me manage the anxiety of writing an hour-long piece, which was the first time I had done that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and crossing into the the world where people start to call things operas and, you know, that whole, uh, the baggage that comes with that term also. Yeah. Well, I think it was really helpful to not think I was writing an opera when I wrote my first one. And it was actually Beth Morrison years later who said, well, you know this is an opera, right? And I said, no, it's, it's not. Is it? <laughs> she said, yeah, totally, because it has, you know, the, the way the, the arc works. And, you know, she gave me all these reasons why, you know, why Soldier Songs was an opera. And I said, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> I wrote an opera. That's great. But I, but I think, yeah, I think not having, you know, the opera is this sort of monolith in a composer's life where, you know, traditionally, you spend your whole life and then you finally write your opera. You yeah. know, it's the sort of grand where you put all of your, your technique into in, 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 in the service of this one giant thing. And um, st- st- kind of stepping out of that kind of traditional tra- trajectory and removing the weight of the concept and the title that the, the, you know, the word opera, I think was really helpful. Yeah, um, I don't know that I could have just started off writing my first opera, quote unquote. You know. So, Soldier Songs was written um, as uh, America was engaged in a couple of wars, one of which I guess we're still engaged in, in Afghanistan um, and, and also in Iraq. How much of uh, the the present moment at that time um, was sort of weighing on you as you wrote the piece? I think it was definitely part of what inspired it initially, you know, that we were that we were actively engaged in this military conflict and also that I had friends who were in it. it was really I don't know, it was sort of a moment where, you know, like growing up I had, you know, uncles in Vietnam and I was new about this this idea that people went to war and that it was dangerous and that it was difficult, you know. But that as a child that was something that had happened in the past that was a past tense event and and you know around 2004 it was a present tense event I mean people were there at that time and it it really started um I I went back to my high school to give a a little talk to students that was like a career day sort of thing and I went there to talk about being a composer and a good friend of mine uh, who I had gone to school with Justin Bennett uh, was there that same day in the same room with me, and he was there to talk about having been a field medic in Iraq. Mm. And um, it was just this kind of it was shocking in a certain way, you know, in in the way that we and I think very often we as Americans are able to sort of keep the experience of war at a distance, like we're able to not think about it. I was faced in that moment with 
you know, the reality that I could not think about it because this person who I care about was in it, you know. And then walking out of this auditorium where we were, there was a little display case that, you know, when I was in school would be where pictures from the prom were replaced or um, the musical or whatever the sort of school spirit moment of the week was. You know, these pictures would go in the display case, and, and at that time, they were all pictures of people who I knew who were in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, people I'd gone to school with, people who I, some of whom I didn't even know had enlisted in the military, um, because we, you know, we graduated and, and lost touch. And so, it was just intensely present for me in that moment, and I, and I just felt like I needed to, I needed to understand, or try, I needed to, to make an attempt to understand that experience. And to think about how I and why I was able to stay so distant from it, what it what had enabled that culturally, and um, and so I set out to say you know to to write this piece, which you know again because of Pittsburgh, I had this this canvas to work with, and early on I um, I said well I have to talk to people, and so I reached out to Justin, I reached out to people who were um, who were home, a number of these sons were still deployed at the time. But I also reached out to my, my grandfather, one of whom uh, had already passed, but the other was still alive, and he was in World War II. My uncles were in Vietnam and Cambodia. Um, my stepfather, who was in um, Air Force Intelligence during the Cold War. And then people who were in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, um, and I just asked if they would sit down and talk with me about their experience and I didn't really have a, a plan so much as I just wanted to have a conversation and see what they had to say and just listen and uh, what was really on one hand shocking on the other hand moving uh, and and felt important uh, to, to this the topic I was exploring right it felt, felt significant was that um, almost everybody who I talk to you at one point that well you know I've never really talked about this with anybody before mm. and you know these are people who have families these are people who are married and have children and you know and the idea that this is not something they've talked about felt enormous to me and that that really became what the piece was about about the, the difficulty to talk about the experience um, because we culturally are so distanced from it that we actually can't, uh, and I don't mean this in any kind of dismissive or uh, disrespectful way, but like I think we can't, as civilians, we can't actually understand the experience. We can approach understanding, we can try to understand, um, but I think you have to actually experience it to understand it. And so the it, the piece became about the difficulty of, of the telling, the difficulty of the understanding, and about the attempt to bring those two entities as close together as possible. And so initially the plan was that these interviews would be the basis for the libretto, and uh, they are. For the most part, um, the, the lyrics are all based on not necessarily, not necessarily verbatim um, passages, but the ideas that were brought up in the interviews. And then at a certain point, I, I realized that these, these people I interviewed needed to really be speaking their own experience. And that's when the interviews became a part of the piece. Yeah. The, the idea of 
me expressing these ideas, I, I felt like it was only I could only go. It was only so far that that was kind of okay, and beyond that, it would sort of be somehow inappropriate. And so I, this is this is when the ending became clear to me. The ending is a sort of big collage of these interviews, and then it, it also starts with them, with with interviews. So the idea that we just we have an audience that is sitting and just listening to these stories felt significant to me. Yeah. That um, because that's the thing that. I had never done. That's the thing that most people never do or never have an opportunity to do. And that act, I think the act of listening is a really important one that I think we can, as civilians, can learn a lot from. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you do you think we um, are any better at listening um, in the 12-plus years since you originally started doing the interviews and and uh, and wrote the piece. Uh, are we are we doing better in the, sort of the national conversation? Are we doing worse? Are we more polarized than ever? Which uh, you know, I, it feels like we kind of are, but it also feels like, you know, we're we're trying at least to to have better conversations with you know what happens when these folks come home. Well, I think that's definitely true, and I think the attention that has come to uh, PTSD and veteran suicide and these difficult uh, situations that are not new, <laughs> um, but that we, I think, culturally are more aware of, I think is a good step. Um, it's hard to say whether I think we're more open to communicating or to listening culturally, because from my perspective, I, I certainly feel that the process of writing this piece completely changed me in that way. Mm -hmm. And so from my perspective, absolutely. <laughs> but that's also just my, you know, yeah. my view of, of things. Um, so it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I hope so. And I hope it's been really meaningful to me to see this piece, you know, which I just wrote thinking it might have one performance, you know, um, to, to see it travel around the country and, and internationally, um, it's been to a lot of different parts of the country, and, and my hope is that it can serve a can kind of serve a function within communities to help people come together, or even to become aware that this this gap exists between listening and and the difficulty of of telling one's experience, and to create even just a little bit of, of empathy that maybe wasn't there before, I feel like is meaningful to me and, that, and something that I hope the piece can do. It wasn't necessarily what I wrote the piece intending. You know, I mean, it was very, at the time, it was very much just about my own experience and my family and my friends. It was a really personal, uh, mm -hmm. personal piece. Um, and maybe that's why it's resonated because it, I think it does have that, kind of personal quality to it that I think maybe helps other people connect to it on a personal level. Yeah. So um, just sort of structurally, um, you're following the sort of the, I guess, the psychological perception of, of war and, and what war is through three different phases of, of life, correct? Yes. Uh, so youth, uh, which is roughly age six through 18, and then warrior and then elder, which extends up to age uh, 66. 
so you know the first youth section is really about playing and games and and war um war toys and you know the things that I played with as a kid mm-hmm. um, and how that teaches us a kind of uh it teaches us that war is a certain thing which is not what war is right it teaches us that the consequences aren't real that you know is a line of if I get shot I'll just play the game again you know video games and toys um, especially video games as they get more and more realistic and more and more graphic um, you know there aren't actual physical consequences to that and then that is presented in stark contrast to the warrior section which have intense consequences for uh, individuals in combat and that section is is I would say probably the most intense and the most in some ways the most compact it really the different songs come at you pretty fast. And, you know, one of the songs is, is a recounting of a car bombing incident that happened in Iraq that my friend Justin told me. And then that's followed by an electronic movement that's just for, you know, pre-recorded track where Justin is describing the experience of running from incoming ordinance and what that is feels like physically and psychologically. And so it's a pretty, pretty intense, um, section and then part three elder really feels like my my uncles in a way this this grappling with whatever it is that you had to do to survive and what what does it mean what does it mean in in a personal sense what does it mean in a geopolitical sense um i feel like especially for veterans of vietnam that questioning is is a pretty intense thing mm-hmm. um talking to my grandfather who was in world war ii it was not so it was very clear-cut it's like well we were making the world safe for democracy and we were stopping the nazis like, yeah. yeah very clear wars after that i think are a little you know as global positioning became the sort of geopolitical norm uh, things get a little more complicated and um, and I think as an individual grappling with an intensely difficult experience in the service of of things that are less clear cut can can be hard, you know. And I think um, that was definitely my experience talking to my my uncles, and yeah. I think that's reflected in the last movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also looks at different perspectives. I mean, Two Marines is, is tells the story of um, a father who is, whose child is. Uh, killed in combat, and so you know it deals with also with the last movement war after war is kind of a PTSD um, episode where this is where you hear all these sort of voices, and so the the thing I'll say about the piece structurally, which I think is important for people to to keep in mind, is that every song is kind of a snapshot. Mm-hmm. So while there is this sort of narrative shape to the piece, and we proceed by the age of the character who's singing, it's not, there isn't really a narrative, there isn't really a story per se, but it's an accumulation through these snapshots of a kind of larger meaning. So, I, you know, I always encourage people to just kind of take it in and experience it in as open a way as possible and then take it home with you and think about it and put it together in your mind. And uh, I think when you do that, you start to see these connections between the different 
different songs, but it isn't sort of, it's not, you know, character goes from point A to point B because it's, it's more episodic than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really um, wonderful to talk to you um, about this piece and, uh, and about your work. Um, and just as we wrap up, um, your thoughts on how opera companies or performing arts organizations, how are they doing in terms of, um, you know, being part of how we welcome back veterans? For example, I know um, Los Angeles Opera um, has a program which gives free tickets to certain productions, certain performances, um, to veterans, um, and Soldier Songs is one of the <laughs> one of the programs um, right. that is part of that that program this year. But how are how are performing arts organizations doing on that front? Do you think? I think opera companies and arts organizations in general are really making important efforts to connect with their communities, which I think is incredibly important. I think the companies understand how important it is now, um, which maybe wasn't the case 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by reaching out and by really thinking about programming that can connect to members of an organization's community, um, I think it's good for the community. I mean, and, and if the, the organization benefits from that as well, that's great. But I think the idea that, it, that we are all, and I say this as, a, as an individual and you know, imagining <laughs> an opera company, you know, that we have to serve our communities. We have to be part of our communities. And I think we have to give our communities what they what they need. And I think the companies that, that have been bringing in Soldier Songs are really aware of that. And I'm really grateful that Soldier Songs can help them do that, that it can help connect to a member of the community that maybe wouldn't be interested in, I don't know, Regoletto or something. You know? <laughs> I think it's a good, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a I think it's moving in the right direction, and I think it's going to continue to move in that direction, serving its serving local communities. David T. Little is the composer of the opera Soldier Songs, which will be presented by Beth Morrison Projects at L.A. Opera on October 13th at 8.30 p.m. at the Ford Theaters. A number of the tickets for this special event have been reserved for veterans and their families. There are also tickets available to the general public, which you can purchase at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauretson. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.